one of the things that we've had to keep in mind as we've gone through the Minor Prophets is just where we are at in the, the story or history of salvation or redemption. Where, at what point in time we, we are here as we're reading these. Uh, things have happened before, significant things in our Bibles. You know, there's a good chunk of our Bibles before, but there's some significant things to come. And we can't really understand this 300 or so year period of the Minor Prophets if we don't look backwards some and if we don't look forwards some. Um, we need to keep in mind the, the big picture and the direction of Scripture. So before we get into Malachi, let me just help us remember a little bit, look backwards a little bit for a few things, and then look forward a little bit, and then we'll consider Malachi. So if we look backwards, we see a few things in Scripture. One is God's promise to Abraham. Back in Genesis 12, and then the next few chapters of Genesis, chapter 12 of Genesis, that is, and then the next few chapters, um, where he promises to make him and his descendants a great nation, to bless them, and through them to bless all the peoples of the earth. God is setting in motion this, this plan uh, for his purposes to bring blessing to all the peoples of this earth. Um, and this was an unconditional promise that God had made to Abraham. And we see this being reaffirmed then throughout Genesis, but then especially as we've gone through the Minor Prophets, it is evidently clear that God is still doing this, that God is committed to the people of Israel and that through them he is doing something grand and glorious for all the peoples of the earth. Also, as we look backwards, we see God's commitment, uh, revelation and commitment to his character. So significantly, and we've gone here several times, but in Exodus 33 and 34, um, Moses asks God to reveal his glory. Show me who you are. Show me your glory. Show me your ways. And God responds incredibly in Exodus 34. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. So this is how God begins to reveal the, the, his nature, who he is and who he will always be. A God merciful and gracious. Moses, I want you to know who I am. Church, God wants us to know who he is. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So God is committed to both mercy and steadfast love towards sinners, while at the same time not just excusing and passing over sin. He will not just clear the guilty. So he is both just and merciful. And this, too, is clearly attested to uh, in the Minor Prophets as we've gone through. We've seen that this is who God is. He does not let unrepentant sin continue on and on and on. He calls people to faithfulness. When there is a refusal to ever turn to him, he, he brings punishment. And yet he continually offers his hand and says, come to me and find my mercy. Draw near to me. Find in me a refuge. And then finally, one more thing in looking backwards in our Bibles from this point, we have the law given to Moses. This, this covenant that God made with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. 
And this law said that if the people were faithful to God, that he would bless them greatly. He, and if they weren't, if they continued to turn from God, he would remove his blessings and bring curses on them. And in a way, the minor prophets, these, these writers, these prophets are just taking this and saying, see, listen to this. Turn to God now and, and he will welcome you and he will bless you. But if you continue down this path of apostasy and idolatry and faithlessness, God has already said what would come. You will go into exile. You will lose these blessings. So that's what's come, some of what's come before. But then, of course, we have to look forward. In God's providence, the whole Old Testament is marching forward to his intended end. Right? It is an unfinished time. And if we don't keep this in mind as we're reading this, we, we will misread and misapply these prophets. And so throughout, as we've gone through these, we've seen all of this great variety of um, amazing promises and prophecies of God's great plan for the future. Uh, we are told of this anointed one who would come, this Messiah figure, a kingly figure in the line of and in the likes of David, his rule shall be from sea to sea. He shall have a universal rule over all. At the same time, we are told this figure will be humble and will, will give himself. He will be a suffering servant. And in a couple places, in Zechariah and in Isaiah 53, we're told he will be pierced for the forgiveness of our sins. And this will be so that in him there will be, as Zechariah says, a fountain opened to cleanse sin and uncleanness. And then we are told that to him come, will come people from all the nations, and he will pour, God will pour out his spirit on all flesh, and it will come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so we see God's promise to Abraham continuing to work its way through, and God, through this Messiah figure, will bless all the peoples of the earth. And of course, from our vantage point, this mystery is made abundantly clear. We know that this is Jesus. We know that this will come about uh, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and all that God does through that. This is where everything is moving, where God is sovereignly moving history towards. So even today, as we, as we finish this up and look at Malachi, just keep this big story in mind. So again, Malachi is the last of the prophets in our Bibles. Uh, it is also um, the last chronologically, most likely. We don't know exactly when Malachi was written, but it's likely some in the decades, several decades after the first um, Israelites have come back from exile in Babylon, come back to Judah, come back to Jerusalem, uh, could be up to 100 years after this point. So this is in the 4th century B.C., a little over 400 years before Jesus is born. And the glaring issue, as we read through Malachi, is that nothing has really changed. The, the glaring issue is... This, in this last record of God's word to his people, before God himself comes into, human, in, into his world, is that the problem of sin and rebellion and rejection of God still exists. Judgment in exile didn't 
didn't fundamentally change the people. Rescuing them from exile, bringing them back into their land, rebuilding the temple, them tasting some of God's goodness as he restores them in their land, didn't fundamentally change their hearts. Malachi's message is honestly much like the rest of the minor prophet's message. The people are as faithless as ever, have little fear of God, continue to get to go and run after false gods and idols. Their leaders are corrupt. I mean, this is the story going all the way back through the prophets, through, through kings and through Joshua and judges, and this has been the story. Despite God's invitations and commands and, and warnings and judgments, despite his gracious promises, despite his telling them of his intent to bless them if they would only turn, by and large, the people still do not fear him, do not make much of him, do not love him above all else. And so it's clear that all of these promises that God has made to create a faithful people, to restore a faithful and righteous people, to heal them of their apostasy, to rid them of injustice and evil, these things have not come to pass. Like, if you're thinking this is the golden age, um, it's pretty clear it is not. Those promises still hold out over the biblical story. And if you step back and think about this, so think about this storyline, the biblical storyline. In a sense, it's exactly the opposite of what you would expect. So just think about it for a minute. The Bible presents us with the God who made everything that exists, the God who claims authority over everything, and then it presents us with his people, his called out chosen people through whom he be, he, he's beginning to bring about his purposes on the earth. These are his chosen people. Now, if you were just, if you were a human author trying to make this stuff up and trying to make a case for this God among all the other gods, this is not the route you would go. These people and how they respond to God. I'm pretty sure the last thing you would do would, would be to over and over again describe their failures and weaknesses and evil in great detail. And then have another author come along and describe it again. And then another author. And all of these authors are part of this very people. I mean, if they're trying to say, hey, we are the special chosen people, they're, and to get people to believe that, this isn't the route you would go. The Old Testament writers seem to be at pains to show that the Israelites are basically just as wicked as all the other nations despite all that God has done for them and among them. So what is going on here? What is God doing in inspiring these writings? What are these human authors doing in airing out the dirty, all the dirty laundry of their own people? Well, God is certainly doing a lot of things through his word all the time, um, some of which we are aware of, some of which we are not. But one of the ways to sum this up that Paul gives us, which we looked at a few weeks ago, is this, that God is removing all boasting 
and glorying in mankind and directing all boasting and glorying to himself. That God is working to rid them of and us of every temptation to worship and make much of ourselves apart from him, to find our life apart from him. And he is leading us to draw near to him and to worship and make much of him to find our life and joy and blessing in him alone. I mean, that's how Paul sums up God's ends in salvation, so that no man will glory in man, but glory in God alone. And so we, as we wrap this up, I want to just take a look at a few snapshots through Malachi that continue to press forward this message, which is the message of all the minor prophets, and as we've seen, is, is one way to sum up what God is doing in salvation and in Scripture, directing all of our hopes and longings and fears and joys and, and satisfaction to himself. Okay, so we're just going to look at a few snapshots here. We're not going to go necessarily in a sequential um, kind of logical order. We're just kind of getting uh, different images and snapshots that, um, of themes that we've seen before, which Malachi also directs us to. Okay, so we'll look at a few of these. First, we see and continue to see that God is calling us into a relationship and that he will not accept heartless religious ritual. That God is calling us and that God desires with us a relationship and that he is not pleased by and will not accept heartless religious formalism or ritualism. Okay, so look at a longer passage here in chapter 1, starting at verse 6. This is what we read. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, and where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts? O priests who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. He will accept. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, 
says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. So in this time in salvation history, God had commanded various offerings and sacrifices to be made um, by his people at the temple. And this was a means both of instruction, of teaching them some things, but also a, a way for them to show devotion, a sign of their devotion to God. These, these were a, a way for them to acknowledge God's presence with them, God's reality. It was a way for them to acknowledge their sin, that something had to be done for them to come into God's presence. But most significantly, this was a way for them to, for God to reveal his grace to them. For them to, to learn that God is a gracious God who provides a way for sinners to come to himself for them to acknowledge the free and sufficient mercy of God. These sacrifices were, in essence, a picture of the gospel, right? They were a picture that God provides a way for sinful humanity to draw near to him in peace and to find his joy and his blessing and all of his goodness. One commentator says this. He says, A primary function of the sacrificial system was as a testimony to the glory and grace of God. So these are not just things to do. This is not just kind of a transactional thing. This is a revelation of the glory and grace of God. But the priests of Judah were conducting so-called worship that not only obscured God's character, but misrepresented it. It was a false testimony full of lies and unrighteousness that profaned God's names. name. So... Both the priests and the people we see, they're bringing these lame and sick um, and blind animals as sacrifices. In other words, they were bringing the worst of what they had, the things that they had no other purpose for. It wasn't, you know, in the, the other ter- in the other meaning of sacrifice, they were not actually making any sacrifices here. They were bringing what had no value to God. And so... This isn't ultimately about what, they are, what is in their hands, right? This is ultimately about what is in their hearts. They are making a statement of who they think God is by what they bring. They are revealing their lack of, um, that they don't think very highly of God. And they're revealing what they think of a relationship with God. They have no desire to honor God. They have no desire to draw near to God. They are merely interest in, interested in buying off God's affection, in getting things from God, in a transactional sort of relationship where, where they do their part and God has to respond. Perhaps they have some sense of the fear of God, some sense that they were not right before God and something had to be done, but they conceive of, of God merely as a problem to be solved. A, a burden that they have to kind of get around as a hurdle on the path to the life that they really want, right? God is not the end. A relationship with God is not the end. There is just this problem of God that they want to figure out. This is a very, this is a cold and dead and heartless religion of theirs, right? This is not a relationship, and so God says it would be better if they didn't come at all. Shut the doors. Is there anybody among you who will just shut the doors? I take no pleasure in you. And so we need to recognize that there are more than one ways, ways to reject and despise God. We can, re- 
reject God and despise Him by just out, outrightly rejecting Him, right? That's, that's obvious. But we can also despise Him by approaching Him like this, merely in a transactional sort of relationship, a business sort of relationship. God, I'll give you something, I'll give you some kind of half-hearted effort here so that you give me what I want, and so that I can kind of pay you off and get you out of the way, then I can be left alone and get on with my life. We, we acknowledge that God has some sort of authority and some sort of rights. We fear him in some sense. But rather than responding with our hearts and drawing near to him, we respond with an attempt to just pay him off we do this in various ways. Some of us are, are very religious in this, and so we give ourselves to good things. We, we give ourselves to, to church and to, to Bible reading and prayer. All good things when done from the heart. Or perhaps we connect ourselves to righteous causes and causes of justice, and we speak out and we give money and we, we march and we outwardly do all of these things again often good things when done from the heart. Or perhaps we just try to stay outwardly pure and we try to keep ourselves from the really big, serious sins. And then when we do face the ugliness that is in our hearts, we just double down and feeling guilty and, and just trying harder. It's possible to do all of this stuff, to look very holy, to look very religious, moral, ethical on the outside, and in essence to be bringing lame and diseased sacrifices to God, where we don't actually value him. We don't actually want to draw near to him. Our hearts are still far from him. We're just trying to keep him at bay, trying to appease him, trying to appease our conscience. We're not actually drawing near to him. And that this is what is going on in Malachi is made clearer as you continue to read and you see that they were, um, the people were living in um, just blatant, continual, unrepentant sin. And, and then they were not acknowledging that at all, but then continuing to bring the sacrifices to God and saying, well, God, why don't you accept them? We won't get into all of that specifically, but Malachi calls out two sins um, both related to marriage. So just briefly, the men were divorcing their wives, and then they were marrying foreign pagan gods, or not gods, sorry, the women from the foreign, uh, the pagan godless nations around them. And in this, they were making light of the glory and the uniqueness and the priority of God among them. They were downplaying that. And they were confusing and distorting their witness as God's people. And so as they did this, as they lived in unrepentant sin, but continued to bring their offerings, it, it continued to reveal the nature of their hearts, that their religion was a sham religion. They didn't want a relationship with God. And I think one of the things to recognizing this is that sometimes we can approach 
repentance merely in this transactional way. If I repent, then God will do this. Rather than in a relational way. But repentance is not merely how we deal with a problem. It's not merely a way to get something from God. No, repentance is meant to be relational. It's a way we draw near to God, and it's a way we experience His goodness and His comfort and His love and His acceptance. In our repentance, we acknowledge that God and His way is right and that we have fallen short. We acknowledge that there is a problem. We have godly grief over our sin. We realize that our sin is not just a a problem on the horizontal sphere, just just because it hurts others, not just a problem because we got found out and, and we feel guilty about it. Ultimately, no, our sin is a problem because it's rebellion against God. And so we have this grief, but that is not where God intends to leave us. The end goal of repentance isn't grief, but is actually joy and freedom and peace and life. That's what God wants to lead us to. That's what he gives us as we repent and find him to be gentle and welcoming and overflowing with mercy for every one of our sins. And this leads to a second snapshot that we find in Malachi and a theme that we've seen over and over again. And that is that God at heart is merciful. He delights to show mercy. This isn't just a, a, um, just merely kind of a cold response that he has to us. No, he, he delights to show mercy. So look at chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. In just one of these wonderful passages that, that we find throughout the Minor Prophets. God says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Which, you know, if you just read that by itself, perhaps you would, um, you would be unsure whether that's good news or not. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. It's good news. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. So notice, like, despite this, And yet you are not consumed. And then return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? And then it it goes on. But the reason they have any hope is because of God's unchanging character. And specifically, because God is committed to being gracious and merciful, steadfast in love. Because they do, God does not change, they are not consumed, even though generations of them, their, their fathers, have turned aside from him. So what is God saying here? Again, he is pointing them to his mercy. God is saying that his unchanging character, his commitment to mercy, is, is their only hope. He's not merely cold and exacting and meeting out punishments and rewards, If he were, we would all be consumed. No, he is committed to showing mercy to a wayward and rebellious people. And yet, what does he say at the end there? They must turn. Return to me and I will return to you. 
as the New Testament book of James tells us, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So our hope is, in the, is singularly in the merciful and kind character of God. That if we turn, he will welcome us. That he will receive us with joy. And so have, we have this responsibility. We must turn. We must seek refuge in his mercy. We must come to him not in pretense and religious formalism, but with our full hearts. We must cast ourselves on un, his unchanging, gracious character like a, someone drowning in the ocean cast themselves on a life ring. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And this isn't just about a future salvation in eternity. It, it does include that for sure. But this is about even now entering in to the joy and the peace and the delight of God. Um, in probably my favorite passage in the Minor Prophets that we've looked at a number of times in Zephani Zephaniah 3. He is a God who sings loudly over us, rejoices greatly in us. Like, Turn to me and find my joy in loud singing. And then this leads to a final snapshot we'll look at in Malachi. Malachi 2 points us forward, looks forward to all of this being fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. So let's look at chapter 3 again, but starting at verse 1. Says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi. And refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me says the Lord of hosts. So there's a lot in here. We won't cover this all, but God is sending a messenger to prepare the way for his coming. Uh, later in Malachi, in chapter 4, verse 5, we are told similarly that he will send Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And there the context makes clear that this Elijah is a, a representative of all the prophets. Uh, he speaks of Moses, and he speaks of Elijah, and these are representatives of, of Scripture the law, and the prophets. And Elijah is this pointer to the final great prophet to come. And then Jesus, as you may recall, picks up on both of these terms and uses them to explain and refer to John the Baptist, calling him this messenger and calling him this Elijah to come. He actually quotes Malachi 3.1 in Matthew 11. This is pointing forward to the, the kingdom coming and being inaugurated with Jesus and John the Baptist preparing the way. 
But the identity of John the Baptist is not the overall point here, and it's not the overall point in the Gospels either. In Malachi, notice in, in 3.1 that God, Yahweh, says this messenger will prepare the way before me. And Jesus picks this up and quotes this, saying John the Baptist is this messenger, but ultimately saying, I am the me, Yahweh. I am the coming of God. Not just this mysterious messiah figure, not just a great human kingly ruler, but God. We just went through Mark and we saw over and over again that Jesus identifies himself as no mere human, but as God in the flesh. And so as prophesied here, God has come in Jesus. And what does he come for? Well, Malachi gives us two reasons here. First, he says to refine and purify a people so that their offerings will be pleasing to the Lord. So the work of Jesus will not only bring forgiveness of sins, as we've seen, but it'll also actually refine and purify a people to, to live faithfully for God and to love him. As we trust in Jesus, God not only removes the, the penalty of sin that we are under, frees us from condemnation, he also removes um, the, the power and the presence of sin in our lives. As his spirit both convicts us and empowers us and gives us new desires, as we live among God's people, as we hear God's word, as God's spirit moves through that, as God disciplines us, we are refined and purified, and this is exactly what we need. This is good news, even though the process may be painful at times. But it's much less painful than the other option. As you see, as in verse 5, as, as it goes on, there is another group of people, those who do not fear God. And to them, God says, I will draw near to you for judgment and be a swift witness against you. Now, in context here, this is, this helps explain what some among Israel were saying. Um, if you go a little further in chapter 3, in verse 14, it's, uh, there were some who were saying it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Right? This is... This is something that we struggle with as well. God, where are you? Where is your justice? What is, is it worth following you? Why do often the arrogant and the godless seem to succeed? And, and even some who claim you but clearly have no fear of you bring harm to your name. Like where is right and justice? Where are you? Will you, will you vindicate your cause and your people? God promises that he will. And this promise does two things. Um, it is a warning to the arrogant, to the wicked, to the godless, to repent and turn and find refuge in God. It is a warning that theirs will be a life lived in vain if they do not turn. But at the same time, it's a comfort 
and assurance to those who have drawn near to God that their life will not be lived in vain. That as we just sang, even the, the hardships and the sufferings will be made, will be redeemed, made the better by the end. So we see there are these two paths, draw near to God and be refined or purified or continue in active rebellion against God and be judged and cast off. And it is so easy to downplay the stark differences between these. Because honestly, we don't always see, like this is not how we see the world. Like life can be confusing. But in many ways, we are tempted to mute the starkness of this, right? That, that there's a lot of middle ways between these things, between God's joy and delight and between God's casting off in judgment. And it seems like we often are content to kind of live in some middle ground where we don't really rejoice and rest in God's goodness and love but neither do we fear, fear his warnings enough to turn to him. And we think God is just mildly, just tolerates us. Well, the minor prophets don't allow that. I mean, if they do anything, they break us out of that kind of medium, milk toast. haven't used that word in a long time, milk toast view of the world. And neither will the words of Jesus allow us to have that view. And neither will the death of Jesus allow us to have that view. I mean, the death of Jesus, right? It, it, it reveals the, the audaciousness and the heinousness of sin. That it took nothing less than the death of God to save us. But at the same time, it reveals the intensity and the the massiveness and the surprisingness of the humble love of God for us. Dane Ortland says it like this, Jesus deals gently and only gently with all sinners who come to him, irrespective of their particular offense and just how heinous it is. What elicits tenderness from Jesus is not the severity of the sin, but whether the sinner comes to him. Whatever our offense he deals gently with us. If we never come to him, we will experience a judgment so fierce it will be like a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth at us, an image from Revelation. If we do come to him, as fierce as his lion-like judgment would have been against us, so deep will his lamb-like tenderness for us. We will be enveloped in one or the other. To no one will Jesus be neutral. The stakes are so much higher than we realize. The call to draw near to God is so much more urgent than we realize. The value and the glory of God is so much greater than we realize, which means that the seriousness of an evil, of ignoring and rejecting him and only doing what is right in our own eyes and going our own way is much greater than we realize. And yet... 
the joy and delight and life in coming to Him, in finding our refuge in Him, is so much greater than we realize. And His willingness and readiness to welcome us and sing loudly over us and rejoice greatly in us once we come to Him is so much greater than we realize. Let's pray.